Hello, it's Paul Scott here, and I'm continuing my series of CEO interviews of companies that are trading particularly well at the moment. And today I'm talking to Louis Hall, the CEO and founder of Cerulean. So hello, Louis. Hi, Paul. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, quick disclaimers, um, I'm not giving financial advice or recommendation. I'm not charging a fee for doing this, and I do not have a personal shareholding. So, as always, uh, Louis, let's start off with inviting you to give a, a description of, of the business. Sure, certainly. So, we, we founded Cerulean back in 1999 uh, at the height of the dot-com boom as a MBO out of what was then Logica PLC. Um, and essentially, we, we bought the telecoms products part of, of Logica and then went on to raise uh, private equity funding and invest in uh, building a sales and marketing team, redeveloping the product set, and, and building a customer base. And um, you know, after raising productive money in 2000, 2001, we then didn't raise any new money until IPO in 2016. And in 2016, we, we IPO'd firstly to exit our PE investors who'd been uh, in there for a long time, also to uh, <clears throat> to enable us to have currency to to, to go out and do M&A, which was something which our PE investors were, were no longer interested in um, in terms of not being really uh, invested in, in technology any longer. Uh, and also we thought that, it, that this would raise our profile in, in a market where most of our customers were quite large organizations. And as we were trying to win bigger deals with bigger customers, um, you know, we, we, we thought the transparency provided by public market listing would be important. Um, so, so in terms of what we do, we provide enterprise software to telecoms businesses, uh, and, and there are all kinds of different telcos, everything from the traditional BT-type telcos to MBNOs, MBNEs, telecom businesses that are part of power companies, um, messaging businesses, so anything to do with, with shipping shipping messages and data and, 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 uh, and uh, voice whatever around networks, um, is our bag. And what we provide is a suite of software that covers the vast majority of what telcos need software to do to be in business. So it's absolutely fundamental to their existence. So it covers the whole customer life cycle from defining the products that uh, telcos want to sell to their customers through to acquiring those customers, supporting telcos with uh, mobile apps, online self-service channels, CRM, CRM software to use in in, in um, call centers, campaign management, um, and so on. Three to then connecting those services to the networks um, for those new customers. Three to managing and monitoring the usage of those services by those customers through a real-time charging platform. And then three to creating bills, um, collecting payments, managing receivables, etc., etc. And a whole host of ancillary uh, modules that sit around those those core functions, and we provide this typically today um, on, on a SaaS basis. Um, traditionally, in this market, telcos quite late adopters really of the SaaS approach. But what we're finding is that more and more, and, and particularly larger and larger telcos, are now looking at the SaaS model, and, and that that um, you know has huge benefit in terms of, of, of predictable growth and, and 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 so on and so on. Um, so that, in a nutshell, is, is what we do. Mm. 
Um, you, there was a very good ShareSock uh, video briefing that you did recently that I've uh, pointed my listeners towards as a sort of part one thing so that we can follow on from uh, in this interview. Now, you mentioned in that that your customers are very sticky um, and lo- long-serving, some up to 20 years, I believe. So why are they so sticky, and why is it that tel- telcos don't just write their own software? That's a good question. I think essentially these are complex systems to deliver. And if you look at a, I mean, we we differentiate ourselves in the marketplace as having a a product-based solution and particularly a SaaS-based product solution. So all of our customers have the same software. We don't write new code for new customers, Um, whereas a lot of the traditional vendors in our space would provide something based on a product framework, but it would be very heavily bespoke for the particular customer they were delivering to. So, you know, whilst um, in our case we can deliver these solutions within 12 months um, where we need to, um, the the traditional vendors would typically take two or three years or more to deliver these solutions. And that's at the point at which a a, a customer has signed a contract. So there's then at least a, a year's procurement process to go through before you get to start a project. So the whole end-to-end replacement cycle is anything from, you know, two years minimum to maybe five or six years. So it's not something which telcos undertake lightly. And also, um, you know, we often say that changing your charging and billing software in a telco business is like changing the wings of a 747 mid-Atlantic. It's 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 a high-risk business, and um, you know, the potential to things to go wrong is is quite enormous. So. You know, that, that, that's basically why um, you know, customers are, are, are very sticky in our market. Yeah, okay. I think we've, we've, we've ticked off two of my questions in one go on that, which is good. Um, now, really, the main crux of what I'm going to try and get to understand from this call is um, the business has been going, as you say, well, before 1999, but standalone 1999. So for 20-odd years, it remained pretty small business really um, ticking along making modest profits but then something seems to have happened in 2020 when the performance of the business in terms of revenues and profits just seemed to start exploding upwards and just to give some figures on that uh, September 2020 you've got a a profit before tax adjusted of 3.7 million which then more than doubled and then uh, this year is heading for um, 11.1 million, which is a huge increase in profits, isn't it? In a, in, a, in just a couple of years. Yeah. So how so how have you achieved that? That's really what the crux of what I'm trying to get bottom off with this interview. That's a good question. I, I think it, it, it's a, there's not one single factor; it's a number of factors. I think it, it takes a very long time to become established in this market. Um, you know the. the the level of trust which our customers have to place in us to deliver these solutions is huge, and, and if you know if we get it wrong, then the cost to our customers can be enormous. So, you know, it, it's not something which you can build overnight. And you know, we spent a long time building a, a solid customer base, uh, in making sure those customers were happy customers who were good reference stories, who you know would support uh, trust in us in the market. So that that was certainly a key factor. Um, that it just takes time to build that, um, and then I think. But I think what happened more specifically in, over the last few years is that the markets really swung around to our view of the world. So we came into this market as a provider of a, a product solution. All customers have the same software. 
um, the modules were all pre-integrated, whereas traditionally um, telcos had tended to buy different modules from different vendors, then there'd be a systems integrator who would try and stitch all this together. And, you know, that, that, that going back 20 years, was, was the dominant model. But what the big change, I think, is, is software as a service and the cloud, in that that has uh, you know, driven a, an ethos which is now much more focused around everyone using the same software and everyone using off-the-shelf products. So if you think about Salesforce, for example, you wouldn't find a telco that would question the fact that or every other telco that has Salesforce uses the same software. It's just except as the way things are done. But, of course, that was very different um, with, with uh, billing charging, what we call BSS and OSS software, um, you know, even five years ago. So, so that big swing towards software as a service um, has helped us to sell our solution, our model, to larger telcos and with larger deals. And, of course, the other thing that's at play here is that software as a service deal is a very different beast to traditional perpetual license and support and maintenance contract deal. Uh, software as a service rolls up um, you know, term licensing, so licenses, in the, licenses today are no longer sold on a one-off basis. They're sold on a recurring term basis, and that is the market. That's the way the market works. And bundled into that, you've got not just support and maintenance, but the, the, the managed service elements of operating the solution on the customer's behalf, and, and also the, the cloud hosting and, and, and all the rest of it. So, so that a, a, creates bigger deals, um, even for the same size customers. Um, and it also creates a lot more recurring revenue and license fees that, that can go on being repeated. Um, and that helps enormously with um, not just uh, margins, but with, with growth and making growth more predictable. So, so I think you know, that, that's, that's um, an important factor. And the, the other point, which I, I don't think I've quite made yet, is, is that we, we've, as we've won bigger deals, then bigger telcos have felt more confident about going with mm. Cerulean. And I think there is a challenge if you look at some of the scale of some of these projects um, you know that are, that are I mean the, the more bespoke solutions that traditional vendors are providing can cost hundreds of millions so to, to spend these larger amounts of money with a, 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 a software vendor that, that's turning over you know this year forecast 32.7 million or so that's quite a challenge but I think as we've won larger customers and larger contracts the next larger customer has felt more confident about going with Cerulean also, I think, helped by the fact that we, we have the transparency of being a listed company. I think that's helped more than we expected it would help. Mm, yeah, reference sites must must be a, quite a big thing. So I suppose the biggest risk to the business then is if something goes, goes wrong, isn't it? Something technically goes wrong. I mean, do you have, have you had any product glitches like that that have sort of presented an existential threat at all? No, I think, I mean, the software is software, and there are always going to be software bugs and software outages. The, the important thing is, is, you know, how vendors respond to that. And we have a very well-respected support service 24-7 for most customers. And, you know, any kind of um, glitch we, we are able to deal with very quickly. Uh, so we, 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 it, it, would be, it would be untrue to say that we've never had a software problem. All software businesses will have software issues from time to time, but we've never had any kind of issue that's caused anything like an existential crisis or any significant disruption. Yeah, brilliant. Um, 
what should we go to next? Oh, yeah, just thinking about contracts again. I saw in a recent RNS you've um, uh, announced the biggest ever contract, I think, £15 million over 10 years. Um, so how much of that would be booked as profit into the year in which it was signed? Um, well, that, that's an interesting one. So that, that's the one that you're referring to, I think, is was signed in July. So given our year end of September, then not a huge amount of that will be would have been booked in in, in 22. I mean, we, our financial 22 ends it ended in September. We, we don't obviously um, disclose all the detail of that, but in general terms, a, a relatively small amount of that would be would be booked into 22. Um, mm. the, the way that we the way that the that these things generally fall out is that the um, the, the, the a certain element of that. Fifteen million pounds is services to deliver the solution, what we call implementation services, and that revenue is recognised over the lifetime of the, of the delivery project. And these are typically anything from twelve to eighteen months long. Um, so that's just recognised on a project completion basis over the, the term of that implementation. The license revenue, the the the, the whole of the license, the, the, the initial term of license revenue has to be recognised when the software is installed, and that's an IFRS 15 requirement, which we, you know, is just the way that we have to recognise that. Um, and then the the sort of the SaaS fees, the the support and maintenance, managed service, hosting, and so on, that's recognised on a straight line basis over the 10-year term of, the, of that deal. Well, that, that's a slightly unusual one because it's over 10 years. More typically, these deals are over five years. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in terms of that really leads on to the sustainability of profits, doesn't it? So obviously the business is performing incredibly well uh, over the last few years. Um, broad brush, is that likely to continue or are there elements of one-offs in terms of this uh, superb performance of late? I think, I mean, obviously there, there are always threats and risks and, and, you know, we have to keep executing and delivering. Um, but, so that's obviously key. Uh, but I think in, in terms in terms of is it sustainable? I think the SaaS term license model um, is much more sustainable than the what we were doing even five years ago, which was more perpetual license and support and maintenance, and you know not having that ongoing recurring revenue stream, which is always renewable. Uh, that does that does um, you know ease the pressure in terms of um, pressure on on, on margins. Um, but also, it's about managing resources. So our, our biggest cost is our people, and you know we're obviously facing a lot of inflationary pressure, not just in Europe, but but um, you know even more so in India. And you know we obviously have to manage that quite carefully. Um, we've we, we've so for example we've opened um, two other offices in 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 India recently, or these two other centres where we're in. We're in uh, cities in India that are not as overheated as Pune, where we, we've been traditionally based. And you know, that enables us to get access to more people, potentially at more competitive rates. We're also, also building our, our operation in Bulgaria, um, you know, again, with a view to managing cost of resources, where we can get highly experienced, skilled people um, at, at a lower cost than we can find those in the UK, for example. So, so, so a lot of that enables us to, to manage the, the, um, the, the, the margins. Mm. And I looked at you, I think, uh, I didn't jot down the figures, but from memory, I think, just to give us a visualization of the company, I think, is it right you've got about 200 staff, about 60% in India, is that right? 
We're up to, uh, well, we're over 300 now. Oh, um, right, sorry. They are growing quite fast, yeah. <laughs> At least track with myself sometimes. But, uh, <laughs> yes, we're well over 300, uh, heading towards 350. Mm. And um, about, um, let me just, uh, sorry, excuse me, I want to give you the misinformation. Um, something like, again, because this changes all the time, something like 175 are in India. Mm. And about a hundred in in London, and you know, they're, they're, I think we're up to thirty or so, um, possibly more now in in Sofia and Bulgaria. Yeah, is it a challenge to manage remote teams doing coding and so on? It's interesting. It, 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 I think the world's changed. So, so uh, we would have said before COVID that yes, this is something we should manage very closely and so on. Um, but I think we learned a lot through COVID about remote working because, in a, in, a, in a sense, you know, every individual is almost a remote office uh, during that period, yeah. uh, and that did enable us to hone the management around that. So we're a lot less nervous about opening more centres, and the fact that we now can easily start teams in more remote locations helps enormously with managing you know, the demand for resources that we have, um, giving us a lot more flexibility. So, so I think I see it more as a positive now than a, than a negative, which is probably the reverse of what I would have seen three years ago. Yeah, interesting. And you touched on cost inflation. Um, obviously, you're, you're, I would imagine the vast bulk of your overheads will be will be staff, IT staff. Yes. Um, now, it's been well publicized that there's a shortage and salaries have been shooting up and so on. But I've also heard some companies saying that's now abating. I mean, how, how are you finding... Pressure, uh, yeah, that, absolutely. I think we I think we've seen the peak in India now. Um, it was very challenging, uh, you know, even a few months ago. Uh, we're now seeing a lot less heat in that market, um, and obviously we've seen announcements of in technology of of hiring freezes and redundancies. So I, I think the market certainly turned in India and uh, UK. Um, Yes, I think we're we're, we're seeing uh, that we're seeing some cooling off in the UK as well. The UK wasn't as overheated as India, uh, but um, I think we're seeing a bit more um, calm in that market as well. Okay, and then uh, a smaller part of your business, apart from the telcos, the smaller part is you also serve energy energy markets. Um, so, given the current energy crisis, are we likely to see any financial risk, maybe from customers going bust, which a lot of UK uh, smaller energy suppliers have, or disruption in any other way from the energy crisis? Well, I think the the, the actual pure energy part of our business is very, very small. So, we have energy companies who are who are big customers, but we're we're servicing their telco businesses. So, oh, I uh, see. One of Denmark's biggest um, biggest uh, provider of TV and broadband services, in fact, the second largest by last count, is actually a, a power company. But the telecoms business is, is um, hugely profitable, so it's unlikely that that you know that would fail um, because it has a yeah. distinct market. And the same is true of one of the big UK power generators where we're supporting their telecoms business. Um, but the actual sort of pure, I mean, to, the 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 only part of, of energy, power, gas, and so on that we service directly is is in providing our network inventory software, which is one of our you know ten or eleven different modules. So it, it is a really small part of our revenue stream, and yeah. you know we're not really dependent on that. 
Okay. Are you going to stay then focused on your niche in, in telcos or, or are you looking at any other verticals? I mean, we're always open to, to suggestions and, and we spend a lot of time looking at different angles and potential acquisitions and how that might fit in. But, but I think the, the telco business, telco demand is so strong right now because it, there, are, there are so many different kinds of telcos. You know, power companies are telcos, you know, to train networks that are telcos, um, messaging business that, that are a kind of telco, so the places we can sell this software. And, of course, it's a completely global market, so, so everywhere in the world, telecoms works in the same way, which means we don't have to have different adaptations for different countries, and it really does make it an enormous market. So, so I think we're a little wary that if we start, start diversifying too much into areas that we don't really have domain knowledge, that you know, there's, there's a high chance we'll, we'll mess it up and miss the opportunity which is already here in, 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 our, in our home market. Yeah, that, that makes complete sense to me. Yeah, okay. Um, well, this all sounds really, really good. Um, what was I going to ask next? Yeah, thinking longer to... Well, let's touch on cash because, again, one of the things I really like about your accounts is they're clear, they're simple, there are no adjustments to speak of. You're only capitalizing about a million a year in development spend. You know, it's all clean genuine cash generation and your cash pile is building up each half year to about 20 million now i think isn't it there's no debt yeah. so what what are your plans for the for, for the cash pile divvies or buybacks or acquisitions maybe yeah i, th- I think it, probably uh, much more focus on acquisitions so, so acquisitions and i think that whereas in the past we were when we, after we'd done the IPO, we were thinking of big transformational acquisitions, buying companies that were potentially bigger than us and so on. Our focus now is more on, on tuck-ins, so adding more jigsaw pieces to our existing jigsaw in terms of product capability and customers in tel- bringing on board more customers in telco through that route as well, rather than uh, buying a new jigsaw and starting again with a whole new mm-hmm. jigsaw. And I think, I think um, you know, that, that those are Tend, then tend to be smaller acquisitions, and, and that's where the, some of the cash will, will come to bear. Uh, obviously, we'd expect to, to raise, um, you know, we expect to raise funds in the capital markets to support those to some extent as well. And there's a potential to add some debt in too. As, we, as you say, we haven't got any debt at the moment. Um, but also, as, as we do these larger deals, you, there is a requirement to have a reasonable amount of working capital. Um, so, although you know we, we are generating cash. Um, quite strongly at the moment if you sign 15 million pound contracts and then that, that becomes the next one if the next one was 20 or 25 or 30 then all of a sudden the 20 million cash balance doesn't look particularly large given the potential working capital requirements of those those bigger deals yeah and it's funny i was talking to another listed cloud it company called beaks financial i don't know if you've heard of it they do financial oh, yeah. market financial markets yeah. connectivity and their ceo i interviewed him recently he he said something very similar that if you're signing a deal with you know a, a tier one international bank they want to make sure you know they want to see plenty of cash on your balance sheet to know you'll still be Absolutely. around yeah well, similar to you i'd imagine yeah it's one of, one of the i mean one of the things that happens when we sign these larger deals is the cfo of the customer wants to see the go to the accounts and look at the balance sheet and that's you know, one of the first or second questions that gets gets asked and i think if we were saying well we've got you know 3 million of working capital and you know, 35 million of debt then that would ring a lot of alarm bells with with those yeah. those customers 
yeah, great. And being uh, an owner-manager, I know you founded the business and you still own 30%, don't you, which is quite striking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's your, your life's work, really, for the last uh, 23 years. Um, we, we, we love uh, companies which are founder, owner-managed at Stockopedia because they, you know, they tend to be, you, you tend to keep a tight grip and you, and you hate dilution of shareholders, <laughs> which is all, all good news. Um, so what I was going to say, yeah, longer term then. So what, what's your vision for the group um, and, and what, what's the end game? What, what is it that you won't want to be doing this forever, I, I, I imagine. So where do you see the exit or the, uh, the end game? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a tough one. I, I, I think that, um, you know, our, our mission is to, is to keep growing, is to capitalize on the momentum uh, we've established and to keep growing this into a bigger and bigger business. And, you know, I think there's been, particularly at the moment, there's, there's an opportunity in terms of the competitive environment as well. Um, you know, we've seen retrenchments of the big Chinese vendors in the markets in Europe and North America. Um, and, and there really are only a handful of players who can do everything that we do in the market. So I think the opportunity is still enormous to, to build this into a much stronger business. And, you know, um, I think the target right now is to get it to half a billion market cap and then the next target's a billion. So we're, we're, we're very focused on building and growing, not, not on dressing up to be acquired. And I think from an acquisition point of view in terms of somebody acquiring Cerulean, the, the, the multiples are, are possibly um, make that difficult for private equity, for example. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's... Um, it's sorry, but, uh, dodging your question, I suppose, in terms of what, what I would do... Um, I think as, as, it, as a business matures, it's increasingly less dependent on, on me as an individual, which is a good thing. Um, but the, the, what I always say is that if, if I was to divest out of civilian, where would I put that money that would earn a higher return than, than, than it's earning at the moment? Um, and if you, in a business where you have control of the levers and, and rather than handing it over to um, you know, a fund manager or a set of fund managers or whatever, stocks that you would have no direct influence over. So which, which, which is sort of plays to your point about, about owner managers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I suppose with the, I mean, the, 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 the total global market must be enormous. I know about half your business is in Europe, isn't it? And the rest is the rest of the world. And it sounds like, you, you know, as you have more and more reference sites, you can bid for larger contracts and so on. So, what, what sort of market share have you got currently and where do you think you can get to globally? Well, one of the features of this market is that there is no dominant player. I don't think any player in the market depends on which, which survey you look at, but I don't think any player has more than you know, 9 or 10% possibly tops. Mm. Who are the main competitors? So there are different kinds of competitors, but the typical competitors that we face are um, Oracle, who have a, a, a practice in in this space, a company called Andox, um, which is the biggest player of pure what we call BSS OSS, so the purest, the biggest player in the market doing just what we do, uh, not the largest company, but has the biggest um, biggest market share, I think. Um, uh, then there's a, a company called Netcracker, which is part of NEC out of Japan. Um, and, and I guess, um, you know, those are the the main competitors. So we also got network vendors, so companies like Ericsson, for example, mm. uh, Nokia, not really competitive because they partner with us to deliver 
their solution. We support them with our billing solution. Um, and the Chinese players are, you know, Huawei and ZTE, we don't really see at the moment in, in those main markets. Um, mm, that's interesting. But, but it, 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 in terms of what our market share is, it, it, mm. it, it would be, it, I'd be surprised. I mean, it, it, again, it's very difficult because you have to look at well, which markets do you, are you excluded from? So, for example, we don't compete in China um, for obvious reasons, and we don't compete in, in Russia or uh, the Russias. So, um, but, you know, I'd be surprised if we were at more than 1% or 2% of market share. So there's a huge amount of space to grow into. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds really exciting, all of this. I think we've pretty much covered all, all my questions, and that's certainly given me a much better feel for the business. So th- thanks very much, Louis. Um, any sort of closing remarks or anything you'd like to cover that we haven't already talked about? I think I think we've covered most of the things that, 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 that I would want to put across. Um, we've mm-hmm. talked about the trend towards larger deals with larger customers. We've talked about you know, the market swinging around to to our, to our view of the world um, around unified products or customers sharing the same products on a SaaS basis. Um, so I think you know th- those are the main the main things that we would, and of course all the other things that you've, you've covered. I think we I think we're pretty much there. Great, and thanks again for uh, well, th- thanks very much for making sure um, you get broker coverage out to private investors. This is a frustration we often have, but you're covered by both Librem and Singers, who both publish their yeah. note- notes on Research Tree, which is incredibly helpful. So that's thank good, you and it's a good that. point actually. So we, we now have six banks covering the stock, mm-hmm. um, and that's been an explosion of coverage in the last twelve months or so. So as well as Singers and Librem, we have uh, Investec. Berenberg, FinCap, and Canaccord on board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, brilliant. And, um, I mean, given that the shares are pretty tightly held, I would imagine there must be institutions trying to find stock. So do they come to you sometimes and offer you money for a placing or anything like that? I think that, that it amongst, I think the, well, the brokers are aware that, um, you know, I'm personally not, not a seller right now. Uh, mm. But I think that the, uh, but there are there are sellers, and, and bear in mind that there, there are one or two share, shareholders, um, in in terms of um, funds that, that are that are very large shareholders, proportionally. Uh, although some of those positions have been have been reduced of, of late, yeah. but also I think um, acquisitions would bring in would would create more liquidity in terms of putting more shares out in the market if we were to raise funds funds um, on the public market to support some of those acquisitions. Yeah. Um, but yes, we're, we're aware that we need to, uh, you know, that, that, that we need to um, get more stock out there. Yeah, it'd be good to improve the liquidity a bit, wouldn't it? The sp- published spread is, is crazy, isn't it? I mean, normally the real prices are well within the spread, but uh, it does put off, I think, some private investors from... Uh, I was looking at my diary to when we first spoke, and it was November 2019. And I can remember the call because I was staying in a friend's house in London. And I remember thinking when I put the phone down, God, this sounds really good. I must buy some stock. And then I got distracted and didn't. And it was £1.87 when when we spoke the first time. I was going to ask you what the price was then. (laughs) (laughs) And it's now, what, 12 quid. So I'm afraid I... uh, Picked up there, but never mind. Can't be helped. Can't yeah, be helped. I, would, I would hope that no investors had lost money. Obviously, there's some fluctuation, but I think mm. the trend over the last couple of years has been reasonably positive, and uh, it, it, it's sure. one of the things that keeps me awake at night, worrying about investors losing <laughs> money. 
Yeah, no, I mean, in the savage bear market, your share's just powering up higher and higher and well-deserved given how brilliantly the business is performing. So long may it continue. <laughs> well, thanks, Paul. I think we do benefit also from being in, in, in a strong sector. You know, telco's critical infrastructure. Mm. Um, you know, it's not all down to us. We, we are fortunate in, in, in where we are, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, thanks for your time, Lou. We really appreciate it, and uh, hopefully uh, speak again uh, in due course. Fabulous. My pleasure. Thank, thanks, <laughs> thanks again, very Paul. Much. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Paul Scott. Left to call. Louis Hall. Left to call.